Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode of the Close Reads podcast is brought to you by Thales College in Raleigh, North Carolina, a new college that integrates liberal arts and professional education at an affordable cost. You don't have to choose either liberal arts or a job-related major in education. Thales College combines both to provide the best possible preparation to help students thrive in both life and work. The cost of college is out of control today because of bloated administrations, enormous athletic programs, and luxurious, unnecessary amenities. Most schools have become too expensive to be a responsible choice for students. By contrast, Thales College was designed with a business model that actually makes sense for students who want to make their first major investment as an adult a responsible choice. Thales College students will draw a profound understanding of humanity and society from the deep wells of Western civilization, gain pertinent job experience through internships, and accumulate actual professional skills in college instead of student debt. Currently, there are professional tracks in both entrepreneurial business and mechanical engineering. For more information, head over to thalescollege.org. That's www.thalescollege.org. Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the Incurable Reader, brought to you by Goldberry Studios. We're here to discuss Willa Cather's Death comes for the Archbishop. Every time I say her name, I have to remind myself to say Cather, not Cather, not Cather, but Cather. If I mess up, which inevitably I will at some point over these these books, I apologize in advance for all the author name purists out there. We are here to discuss books four and five of this book. And that means that we are reading, I think, Snake Root is book four, and then book five is Padre Martinez. And there was a lot of well, there were a couple of comments on the Facebook group about people saying how much reading book five was, I don't know what the word is, painful uh, for them and how they were interested to hear what we had to say. So um, we can discuss book four as well, but let's, let's kind of dive right into book five because I think it, book four will dovetail into that and then we can, we can bring it back around. So here's the, here's a question that I have for you. Tim, the other day, on the Lord of the Rings podcast, we were discussing the end of the Fellowship of the Ring. And as you might recall, the end of the Fellowship of the Ring, we run into some uh, Boromir-related conflict. You might recall that. And the question that I had was, it was Boromir, does he become villainous? Does he become a bad guy, so to speak? Uh, and so I have a similar question for, for, this, for this book, book five. We got this Padre Martinez character. And as I was reading, it might just be because we talked about the, the, the notion of villainy the other day that that was stuck in my head. So for the two of you, would you view Padre Martinez as a villainous character? How are we supposed to view him from Willa Cather's perspective? Heidi, do you have an initial response to this? 
Yeah, I, it's interesting as you were asking that question, I realized I hadn't even thought about it in those terms. It's a perfectly legitimate question and a good question, but I think that these two books that we read, I'm, I'm really grateful that they went together for the podcast discussion because I think that the thread of continuity that runs through them is the conflict between cultures. And, um, and so I was, this is why I hadn't necessarily thought of Martinez as, you know, in himself a villain, more as kind of embodying the uh, corruption, the potential corruption. And, and, you know, he's, he's an embodiment of this kind of cultural syncretism that we find in the Catholic faith that has, that has come in here. We have kind of the ruthlessness um, and ambition of the Spanish conquistadors along with hmm. the kind of uh, savage syncretism of some of the Indian religions that are kind of meeting here in, in this person and in hmm. the bastardization of the faith that he's embodying here in the book. And, um, and so I hadn't thought of him necessarily as a villain in the uh, personal sense of the word, but more mm-hmm. as, you know, an embodiment of the corruption of this culture that she's, she's pointing out um, in the story right now. You know, how when you talk to people who are good at reading books and they say something and they're like, and you're like, that's obvious now that you mention it. But I hadn't thought of that at the time because I hadn't necessarily occurred to me. Maybe I was reading too fast. I hadn't occurred to me that he represents the merging of these two cultures. But I see what you're saying there now. Um, that's really interesting. So I guess then that, because if, if we look at it that way, that would cast a different light on my question. Because if in the end he is villainous, like if that's the conclusion that we draw, then we're also concluding something about the merging of those two cultures and what the book is mm-hmm. saying about that i mean in a way in a sense we're sort of i mean, i don't want to make it you know a syllogism per se but in a sense we're saying that there's a sort of villainy within clash of those two cultures the way they come together so the, the, the question i guess would be then be mm-hmm. is that necessarily the case like is it necessarily right. a problem or is that is it the the result of a particular person well and here's where i would say back to you the question you're asking is legit and important because it's, it is, it is not inevitable that in a clash of cultures, you have a corrupt priest. That's not inevitable. That has to do with the personality of the, the personhood, the choices, the virtue of the man who is at the meeting of those cultures. And, and, and that so case, it's inevitable because he, of human beings, not because it's the absolutely, cultures. Yes. The cultures. No, nobody's making him become corrupt and he chose that for himself. So I think that those two questions, the one you're asking, is he a villain and, in, in the story and mine as seeing him as kind of a representation of, of what, um, Latour is not, you know, like Latour is coming in, he's honoring the cultures. We see that in book four. He's intrigued by them. He's not trying to make any, he's not trying to Europeanize the native peoples um, or, or the Spanish people. He, he is, he's interested in the church. He wants the church to be pure. So he's in that way, he, he has this purity of heart that has to, at some point be balanced by somebody. Right. And so we have this kind of series of, of characters who, who have given in to the temptations at the, at the clash of the cultures. And that has to do with the personality. So the question, is he a villain is important. There's, 
this is, again, because it's so episodic, we don't have one main villain. We have kind of the embodiment of different potential temptations, falls, and, and um, people who resist the temptation, people who give in. Um, and he's one of those who's given in. Tim, do you, how do you, did you read him as like having the hallmarks or the markers or sort of the traits of, of a bad guy? I did. It's hard for me to see him as anything other than a villain. First of all, I can see his charisma. I think part of the gift of Cather is that the, the charisma of the man and the strength of the man really shine from the pages of the book. Hmm. And I can see why he has a following. Um, and I can see why he's done good to his community, no doubt. The trouble that I have with him is that he signed a contract. I mean, in essence, by becoming a priest, he signed up for a thing and he gradually over the course of his career said, yeah, I don't buy those things. I want to do things my own way. And I, and I respect as much as anybody, someone who's willing to be enough of a renegade to kind of, I don't know, like accomplish things um, despite social pressures to the contrary. I can absolutely respect that. I think this is what he's doing, what Father Martinez is doing, is something different entirely. And I, I read his kind of justification, or let me, how do I say it? When he was pushing back against Father Latour saying, you will never have the people because you're a Europeanizing colonizer. I read that as Father Martinez basically saying, I have decided to do things in the way that I see fit to do them. And since you're telling me or about to tell me I can't do things any longer, then I'm going to call you a colonizer. So it's a sort of retroactive, let me, how do I say that? Like maybe he believes that Latour is a colonizer. For me, I read it as what he's really about is justifying his own decisions and his own behavior. And in order to do that, he has to delegitimize Latour. Mm. I didn't have a whole lot of sympathy for Martinez at all. Because if he had not signed a contract, if he did not know what was expected of him, it would be very easy for me to have a lot of sympathy for him. He kind of did the best he could without really knowing what he was called to do. I think he knew what he was called to do and he didn't want to do it. He wanted to be a strong man. He wanted to run the show in the way that he wanted to run the show. Hmm. Don't you think that, I mean, I totally agree. I think that that's the thing that Cather's pointing out though, with these two corrupt priests um, juxtaposed with Latour and Bayon is that we have, when you're a priest, you have a certain amount of authority and, and there, and it's very clear that that is what they want. They want the power. They're in love with the power. They're drunk on the power. And they want to be able to use the power to feed their own lusts, one for wealth and one for women. And that I think that there's this is the particular temptation of the priestly vocation that's being pointed out in this section, I think, by Cather. Hmm. Tim brought up the word sympathy. Mm -hmm. And it immediately, immediately calls to mind two things for me. Um, on the one hand, he said, I, he didn't have, Tim, you said you don't have much sympathy for, I don't want to talk about you like you're not, like you're not here. Right. Um, have much sympathy for, uh, for Martinez. Right. 
so we can talk about that like Heidi do you feel the same way like you don't have sympathy for him we can discuss that but then there's also the question for me of it's kind of it's, maybe it's threefold do we as readers have sympathy for him does it seem like Latour has any sympathy for him and then third does the book have sympathy for him um just and i guess by extension does cather he's a he's a complicated character as as you guys were saying so heidi that first question tim says he didn't have much sympathy for martinez do you have sympathy for him no i don't have sympathy for him do you think latour has sympathy for him i don't know i think that latour sees him as a problem um I also think that Latour accepts the fact that the temptation to power and the temptation to use power to feed uh, your own sins and lusts is part uh, and parcel of being a priest, learning how to either fight that uh, or give into it. He doesn't seem to, he's not shocked by the fact that any of these priests in the new world are acting like this. There's no sense of, oh my goodness, I had no idea, right? There's, it's just, he calmly accepts it and then figures out how to deal with yeah, it. So right. I don't think that sympathy, but I also don't think he's surprised or appalled or shocked. I think he just is like, this is part of being a priest. You either, you either overcome the temptation or give into it. And these are giving into it and I have to handle it. That word sympathy is a, is a funny word because I think when we, we sometimes interchange it with empathy and there's a slight, you know, difference in the meaning of the words, but you know, the old meaning of the word is to come along some, to, to, to come alongside someone's passion. I think that because father Latour is a human being and it's interesting that you use the word passion, by the way, just because that's what the root word sympathos is. So like, I like, I think we come to, we probably more mean it in contemporary parlance as um, like emotion, David. Well, I was just going to say, it's, it's interesting that you use that because we get um, Trinidad who tries to recreate the passion of the Christ in for oh, himself. Yeah. Um, so it's just interesting that you, you said you come, kind of come alongside that passion. Go, go on though. That's probably something we need to come back to later. I think that Father Latour can come along, can understand from the outside why Father Martinez act, acted in the way that he does. And in that way, I think, and maybe Heidi, you would agree, uh, Bishop Latour can be sympathetic to Martinez, but I don't think he's sympathetic in that way where we kind of say, man, I would have done the same thing. I would have done the same thing. I think Latour is like, no, I wouldn't have done the same thing actually. And I like, I'm facing all the same, same temptations and I'm not doing the same thing. So I think he's not sympathetic in that regard. Yeah, that's fair. It's interesting to me though, how like on 152, Bishop Latour is trying, trying to understand what made Martinez who he was, you know, it's like, we're trying to, you know, you've tried to figure out what makes a monster, a monster, right? There's a, mm -hmm. there's a giant two-part biography of Hitler that's out right now. And let me tell you, sold very well during Christmas and it's pretty popular right now. And the, the second one, which is kind of about his downfall just came out. And so we, people in general are always trying to figure out, you know, what makes somebody like what makes somebody go from the backstory they want the villain's backstory well, right, right? But, and like i think people a lot, a lot you know you could see latour saying at what point did he veer off to becoming the martinez that he became mm -hmm. and not become the vion right. like there's mm -hmm. a there's a turning point and so for example you, you you hear it says 
Antonio Jose Martinez grew up there without learning to read or write, married at 20, and lost his wife and child when he was 23. So we have this like flashpoint, right? That at, mm-hmm. becomes this turning point, a dramatic moment in this character's backstory. You know, it's almost as if he's studying the motivation because he wants to play the character in a play. After his marriage, he learned to read from the parish priest. And when he became a widower, he decided to study for the priesthood. Taking his clothes and the little money he got from the sale of his household goods, he started on horseback for Durango in Old Mexico. There he entered the seminary and began a life of laborious study. The bishop could imagine what it meant for a young man who had not learned to read until long after adolescence to undergo a severe academic training. He found Martinez deeply versed, not only in the church fathers, but in the Latin and Spanish classics. After six years at the seminary, Martinez had returned to his native uh, Abiquiu. How do you say that? Does anyone know how to say that? Abiquiu. As a priest of the parish church there. He was passionately attached, hey, there's that word again, to that old village under the pyramidal mountain. All the while he had been in Taos half a lifetime now, he had made periodic pilgrimages on horseback back to Abiquiu, as if the flavor of his own yellow earth were medicine to his soul. Naturally, he hated the Americans. The American occupation meant the end of men like himself. He was a man of the old order, a son of Abiquiu, and his day was over. Um, And it's like there's a sense in which he's trying to imagine what makes a person become who he is, you know, go ahead, Heidi. Um, no, I, I mean, I do. I was just thinking about Bishop Latour's response to him. And that's probably why I had like a wanting to talk look on my face, but <laughs> I'm, I want to, so, but anyway, finish what you were saying and then I will say my thing. <laughs> well, it's interesting because he, he he's able to, identify these moments and it seems as he's trying to imagine, you know, I can imagine how this would impact somebody, how this would change somebody. And he's trying to understand the sort of cultural, not there's the, there's the personal events that surrounded Martina's life that helped make him into who he was, that helped guide him along a certain path that he, you know, he had to make certain decisions along that path. But for example, the, you know, his wife and his child, die when he's 23 he he can imagine what it must have been like to all of a sudden be surrounded by books and have severe academic training having never done anything like that before and how it might lead him the implication seems to be you know it could lead him in the wrong direction and he said he's he almost respects the amount of learning that martinez has consumed about the church fathers and latin and spanish and you know the classics probably read don quixote right so he has this respect for him and then there's also the cultural side where he's like colonization by the Spanish and the Americans have both impacted the kind of world that the way that the world that this person grew up, grew up in has changed. And how can that not also impact you? So in a way I kind of read this passage, like he's trying to get a sense of what made this guy who he is. And I don't know if that's the same thing as having sympathy, but it seems like he's at least trying to be charitable mm-hmm. to him. I mean, Right. I think that that's really insightful. And he never, Bishop Latour never loses sight of his failures as a priest because the bishop is always looking at it. Or Martinez failures. Martinez. Thank you for clarifying. Um, He's he's going into that conversation knowing that this man is a problem, and and so I think his sympathy is in understanding him right and in saying oh i understand where i understand 
that you could have been a great man. He even says that at the bottom of 149, rightly guided, the bishop reflected, this Mexican might have been a great man. He had an altogether compelling personality, a disturbing, mysterious, magnetic power. And I even felt it. I thought the description of his face with like the muscles in his, his cheeks it's like, I've, mm-hmm. I think that's maybe the best description of a face I've ever read. Like I could see the guy's face. Like, I feel like he's like a per, like a real person. Um, and I know exactly what she's talking about. Who says when she says that she describes him as not having just like smooth, big cheeks, but they're like full of muscular energy. And I've seen faces like that when you can see like the working of muscles underneath the skin, um, and like the description of his eyebrows and all of it. Like I can see this guy and I just, I think it's so interesting how the bishop is, he's approaching this as a problem he has to figure out how to solve. And the conclusion that he comes to is relatively pragmatic, right? It's like this guy's old. He's not going to seduce and ruin too many more young women. And the people are so firmly under his spell that we might lose them if we try to push him out right now. So I have to find somebody who can handle it before they try. And of course that, and even that fails. Um, I thought that the other priest, Lucero was far more disturbing. And like, I thought his story was super creepy. So I was interested in the Facebook response to Martinez. Cause I, I mean, no doubt he's corrupt villainous kind of man. He definitely, led he definitely failed as a priest but mm-hmm. lucero's like personal kind of like his greed and his his malice even on his deathbed i just the whole thing is yeah. like really disturbing to me yes before that. we go to father lucero what is the facebook comments about martinez have been i didn't see them it was just a few like really good comments about like how disturbing how yeah, how disturbing that they found ah, his corruption and his personality. Got it. And a couple were about chapter five. And of course, Lucero is mm-hmm. also in chapter five. The reason I wanted to ask about the villainy of Martinez is because yeah. I actually do want to contrast him with Lucero. Oh, good. <laughs> so, I like that. On the one hand, we have Lucero. I mean, we have Martinez, who we just talked about. And then we, we have this greedy, um, dark, like the, the, the passages are just really dark about that guy, about Lucero. So go on with what you were saying, Heidi, because, I mean, it's weird because the the way I almost was thinking about it was Martinez has more of a villainousness about him, but Lucero seems to have more of a, like, the only only word that comes to mind is a sort of demonic characteristic about him. Like, like maybe Martinez is like Saruman, and Lucero is like a ringwraith or golem or something like that. There's something so like Martinez seems to have an awareness about himself that he's kind of like, mm-hmm. these are the decisions that are making. This is what I want to do to Tim's point. And he justifies himself, but he knows the decisions he's making. And Lucero has to me, seems to have more of a, he is corrupt, not by choice, but it's as if he has been over time poisoned or consumed mm. by something. Perhaps his greed is the thing that he's been consumed by. And I think before I turn it over to Heidi, you know, that, that saying the devil, you know, is better than the devil that you don't know. I think that Martinez is the devil. We know 
like you said, hmm. David, like he's upfront about, Hey, I'm going to do, I think yeah, he's pretty clear I, I'm about do his this. motivations. Yeah. Right. And he's pretty yeah. clear about what he's and doing his goals. <laughs> and his goals. And I would rather in some ways deal with Martinez. Cause you at least like, you're like, okay, it's like shoulder to shoulder. We're uh, opposed to each other here. I know where you're trying to go. You know where I'm trying to go. May the best man win. With Sarah, it's something different because you're not quite sure. He's hidden in some ways. Um, he's harder to he's harder to like understand his motives and goals. So he, I mean, he he lives in squalor, but has great wealth, right? Buried under his buried under his, his hut. His, yeah. Anybody that's like that, it's, that person's a little bit, you know. There's there's some questions you have about a person yeah. that chooses to be that way. Um, the the miserliness has the the greed has overcome everything else. Go ahead, Heidi. Yeah, there's a there's a verse in the Bible that says the sins of some men go before them and the sins of other men trail behind them. And that that seemed really um, like in sharp relief between the two of them. As you said, Martinez has a, a magnetic quality to him. He's open and above board. He's um, and but he's not charming in the sense that we're kind of like rooting for him, you know, kind of like if you're people who read paradise lost, you kind of like are for Milton Satan a little bit. Um, and he, he wins you over. Yeah. Partly because he's so very straightforward about what he wants. Um, and there's some human tendency to admire that. Right. Um, but I think that Cather rightly put in that um, that anecdote about him seducing the saintly girl who had, whose like virginity was miraculously protected for so many years after being kidnapped and traumatized, and then it was it was indeed Martinez who ended up deflowering her and debauching her, and then selling her off to one of his minions. Like that's a truly wicked thing to do, an incredibly evil action. Um, uh, and so he's not like your charming ne'er do well, devilish, you know, hot bad boy. Like he is a bad man. But then Lucero, he is the man whose sins trail behind him. Everybody knew he was a miser. Everybody knew he was power hungry and greedy. Um, I was struck. I thought that the most disturbing part of the death was not the money hidden under the floor, although that's. I mean, I, I think that's a metaphor to his great wickedness, right? But uh, or an objective correlative, rather. Um, but it was his last words, like that, his malicious accusation. Or on the other hand, the like, if it's not a malicious accusation, if it's not, if it's not his own wickedness, like using his last words to cast doubt on the character of this of his rival. If it's not that, then it is indeed, like. A, a promise of hell from the other side, like that he really did see this man in torment in the other world. And of course, Cather being a great author leaves that in, up to the, up to the interpretation of the reader. Um, the but latter. that I thought was very disturbing and how he just, even after he received communion, he was still so paranoid and the whole thing was just really, it's, it was, it's just a disturbing haunting scene. Yeah, it's one of those scenes that makes you wonder exactly what the book is trying to say about the sacrament, <laughs> the sacraments. Yeah, <clears throat> it's interesting that he be go on. Well, it's just interesting <laughs> that she begins the section with something about how 
before he died, he was reconciled to the church or something. He died a repentant, I think it says. Yeah, 163. Father Lucero died a repentant, and Father Vaillant, who had pronounced his excommunication, was the one to reconcile him to the church. So it suggests that he was reconciled to the church. It tells us directly. And then it goes in to tell the backstory of him, it goes backwards, and then I know you're kind of like, oh, what a sweet moment. That's so lovely. And then you're like, whoa. Yeah. And then you <laughs> and then all of a sudden, like everything's been pretty brutal and pretty dark. And then Father Vaillant does you know i guess he gives absolution and and like comes and you know is there for the deathbed but then if he is if it's the latter scenario i think he was the latter one that you said where mm -hmm. it's he actually is seeing seeing into the second into padre the next martinez life. in in yeah. the next life and he's seeing him in hell or something of that sort then does that mean he's there as well and that the reconciliation through the sacrament didn't take. And so why does he see Padre Martinez in mm -hmm. burning? Well, and does he make a full confession? Cause he doesn't, yeah, I mean, we're not Catholic, but we are sacramental, right? Like, so does he, like, does he make a full confession on his deathbed? He confesses some of the money, but he doesn't confess all the money that's hidden down there. Right? right. That's a great point. So then what's our narrator telling us that he, when she, when the narrator says that he was reconciled to the church, is the narrator not aware, self-aware of what's the lack of full confession? It's or... a very ambiguous scene and it's, yeah, it's brilliantly written, I think, but it is creepy. And if you are looking about at it through the sacramental lens, there's some unanswered questions about this man's death. Uh, and, and it's very clear that he is still, and captive to his lust for money, even on his deathbed. His fear of being robbed haunts him till the very end, even after his confession, absolution, and the receiving of the sacrament. It, you know, I think it's telling that everybody who's there that's watching, that, and they view it as this sort of profound thing to witness, yeah. they also sort of come away with it not clear. <laughs> mm-hmm. Tim, were you going to say something a second ago? No. No? Okay. It's interesting. I go back and forth on this. Because Heidi, you said um, you said that it's, it's brilliantly written. I think so. And part of me wants to be a contrarian just for the sake of some podcast drama. Please do. <laughs> I don't... So I think it is brilliantly written. And yet I also wonder if there are... I mean... The part of saying something like this is who am I to judge, to, to not to judge, but to question whether someone who has proven and stood the test of time to, you know, proven to be a great writer, far better than me, who am I to, quite to question what they did? I do wonder though. You're David Kern. That's who. Question. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a born questioner. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> um, I wonder if there are, sometimes there can be a fine line between leaving things unanswered and abstract and not pinning things together the way they need to be. <laughs> so part of me wonders if, if is, you think this is too ambiguous? Maybe. I also wonder like, did Kather, Kather not have a uh, firm enough grasp on the, the theology of the sacraments themselves and leave like, is that gap supposed to be there in terms of, because she says, like the book says, he was reconciled to the church. So then, when he's clearly 
not spiritually in the right right place at the end, and then possibly, based on the rumors anyway, seeing into the afterlife and and seeing someone else be in in hell, is she questioning the veracity of the sacraments themselves? Is she questioning this theological teaching, hmm. uh, or is she leaving that? Is, is the abstraction there for the sake of character? Is it there to question the theology? Is it there because she didn't bring things full circle enough? Um, that was what I found myself wondering about this section. Is there, and I'm not saying she did a bad job. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that there are questions that I'm trying to understand. Like, it's almost like, what's the question that we need to ask? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but also maybe I'm reading into it too much and not seeing something there. It's not there. Mm. Right. No, I think that it is, I think it is deliberately ambiguous. I think your point about, but why? This statement. But why is it ambiguous? Like, why does it need to be ambiguous? Like, something being ambiguous for its own sake is not. I, I don't. Who cares? Like, anybody can be. Right. Ambiguous. I know what you mean. It's not a virtue to be ambiguous as a writer. There's nothing. No. There, you you do that if, when you're trying to raise questions and leave them to the interpretive powers of the reader. Um, the, Cather makes the statement that he was reconciled to the church and that he confessed his schism, his sin of schism, mm -hmm. which he does not then take back after his confession, right? He says, and that's the heresy, right? So I think that there's um, a, like he doesn't commit heresy again after his, after he receives communion. But I think one of the things that well, she might be, pointing a finger at or is that his sin of heresy was always just part of his sin of greed, right? The reason that he was a heretic and a schismatic is because he wanted to keep his money in his power. And it's that that he's holding in his literal cold, dead hands at the end of this chapter. Hmm. Tim, jump in at any time. Um, I, I just keep thinking and I'm, and I'm, pretty ignorant on Catholic theology on this point. Can one be reconciled to the church and not be reconciled to God? If the priest shows up at his bedside and says, um, yeah, maybe that's what I'm asking is what is, is that what she's saying? That you can't well, there's be? only a very few mortal sins, like sins that you cannot, that you, that you cannot be reconciled from without the sacrament, but without the, the, the sacraments at the end of your life. Um, and heresy is a, I mean, different, different traditions see, really do see heresy very differently, right. even in the Orthodox tradition, which we're a part of. That's, I mean, we see, some see that as, so there's, there, there is some, there's some room for interpretation on that, but that would have been considered like the bigger sin, right? And he is cleansed from that one, but he does die in power hungry and greedy still to the end and malicious to the end hmm. that I'm, I keep wondering if that's what she's trying to kind of point out um, is that the hold that that had really on this. And, you know, and if you're not a religious that, and if you're not a religious person, we are right. Like if you're not a religious person, you're just going to see this as like this poor old man who deceived himself his whole life and then just died in pain and with the same problems he had in life. So you know, I, I appreciate the theological like discussion that's happening. I read it 
perhaps too shallowly. I just read it as a report of, um, as a report of events that happened. So if, if mm-hmm. Willa Cather says he was reconciled to the church, well, I think according to Catholic doctrine, he was reconciled to the church. Does that mean metaphysically his heart was, um, stood justified before the almighty throne? I don't think Cather is making any comment whatsoever on that. So if she's not making a comment on that, and she's just saying he was reconciled to the church according to kind of like, for lack of a better word, the bylaws of the church, um, then it's fully possible that this man who said the right thing still retains like the earthly taint of sin and avarice upon him. Mm. It's completely, that's that's how I read it. I read it much more journalistically. And I didn't, I didn't really look too hard. Maybe I should have at the kind of theological crawl space between (laughs) getting right with the church and and the remaining avarice that, that clings to him. I think, I mean, I think that's, that, that is, it's the story of a man's death and all of us bring our own preconceptions and thoughts about death when we read about the death of somebody. And I, I mean, did you, my question is, I mean, let's go back to the sympathy question, right? Like, did either of you feel any sympathy for Lucero that you did or didn't feel? And how does that compare to your sympathy for Martinez? Cause she's deliberately putting these two priests, corrupt priests together here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you feel any sympathy for this man? I, I didn't for Lucero. No, I, I think that he part of him wanted to do the right thing at the end, like a like a sliver of him wanted to get right with the church, and so he made the. Yeah, decision. I mean, I read it as fear, like fear he's about to die, so I got to get my house in order something like that david well and he paid he wanted the money used for masses for his own soul yeah he's clearly worried yeah he's clearly worried so did you feel any sympathy for him i mean he suffered a lot at the end and i can feel i mean because i see what's going on with my dad every day boy it was really easy to have sympathy with just the amount of pain that the poor man is in so yes in that regard I think the thing that we're focusing on both with Martinez and I'm sorry, why do I keep forgetting his name? Lucero. Lucero is um, their volitional actions, which is the only thing that we can really um, make an assessment of. They, they are making volitional judgments. Martinez to be this strong man, to seduce young women, to, you know, abuse his servant. Um, Lucero is making volitional judgments to hoard gold stored under his and to try at the end of his life to kind of get back in the good graces of the church. So I, I feel I, I, it seems to me as a reader, I don't care for either one of these men. I wish they had made better decisions earlier in their lives, but I can still have sympathy with, Poor Father, Father Martinez lost a wife and a child. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! My heart goes out to him. Father Lucero in his on his deathbed, suffering. You know, like these acute pains. Oh, I have pain so much, so yeah. much sympathy for him. But it's their it's the choices they made before and around those and after those events 
it's it's kind of hard. It's those are the ways in which it's hard for me to have sympathy for them. And, and like as always, there but for the grace of God go I. I I'm not claiming in any way to be um, faultless or better. But as a reader, I think we are kind of called to like evaluate these characters from time to time. And I think these these are two characters that Cather wants us to make assessments of. I think exactly. You know, I, yes. I, Totally agree. I really, I mean, her reputation they is- are invitations to judgment. Yeah, I think so. Our, and yeah. I, think, I think we're called to make assessments of them because they're being measured against our two great heroes mm-hmm. who are facing Agreed. similar sorts of um, trials and temptations, and yet they continue the march forward and they continue to try to do what's right. They're not faultless themselves. But I think that call to kind of assess these two fathers is in light of these real beacons in New Mexico that we are more and more coming to respect and admire and not just to sympathize for the trials, but also sympathize that they continually make good decisions, good, wise decisions full of integrity. It's, it strikes me as you're talking, they're also this, this story. How do you talk about the through lines earlier? This feels like a sort of Edgar Allan Poe story out of this world. Um, and that there's, there's a sense in which their story helps us understand the world that father Vaillant and, and Bishop Latour are ministering to and are living in because you, before he dies, you get that whole long section about how people all want to gather around. And then on 170, among the watchers, there was always the hope that the dying man might reveal something of what he alone could see, that his countenance, if not his lips, would speak and on, the, and on his features would fall some light or shadow from beyond. The last words of great men, Napoleon, Lord Byron, were still printed in gift books and the dying murmurs of every common man and woman were listened for and treasured by their neighbors and kinsfolk. These sayings, no matter how unimportant, were given oracular significance and pondered by those who must one day go the same road. And there's, there's a sort of way, there's a sort of confluence of suspicion, or um, not suspicion, um, what's the word? Uh, of like a sort of pagan, hmm. um, well, of paganism. <laughs> I don't know what the other word is I'm trying to think of. And Christian piety sort of, coalescing in this mm-hmm. moment much has been the case throughout this whole book you have right. the 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 faith and the and the teachings and the practices of the catholic church running up against what they would what would be the pagan religion mm-hmm. of the the native people and in a sense there's a sort of there's a way that the way they're viewing the kind of things that people say and what's on their faces and all that sort of thing and the way they crowd around bears the markers of some of that paganism um and i still can't think of the word what's the word it's got to start with an s feels like it's got to start with an s (laughs) well there is a like there's a syncretism that that's not that was the word i was thinking of that was not the s word i was thinking of (laughs) (laughs) but it's that's that's a major part of the problem of the growth of an institutional church in a a native culture that and, and that's that is what has happened that that happens all the time like and and there's <laughs> there's this sense that happens in Africa it's happened here it's happened all over when here comes these like 
European missionaries, whether well-meaning or whether power-hungry and corrupt, right? Either one. And uh, because the dividing line of good and evil goes through every human heart. So they they come in with this message, right? And it's received very well by Native people. And, and they're like, and then the European missionaries are like, yay, we're, you know, winning them over to the gospel. And all these hundreds of thousands of people are being saved, you know, air quote, saved. And, and then it comes that, you know, it becomes clear that it's, that there's a syncretism that happens that they're like, sure, we'll worship your God, but we're also going to keep our own traditions and our, but that that have very, very deep roots and cultural uh, and are very tied up in the daily culture of native peoples. And that's, that's what happens. That's, that's the problem of colonialism. It's the problem of missionary work. And, um, and, and that. That's that's what's happening in book four, right? As Bishop Latour is being led by Jaquinto, and then he comes face to face with like the depth and the weight and the power of the hold of this cave-like place that represents the native religion, right? And he's he's protected by it. I mean, it's a very complex book. I think it's a very, book four is very complex. And very powerful. Um, he's he's both protected and saved and sheltered by the existence of of this cave, and he's also like repelled and overwhelmed. And he's and it has like this depth to it. These like this roar from the depths that he can hear with his physical ears that is representative of the the native peoples and and their their like very rich heritage and deep history. And they may Hakinto may kneel at the side of the cot and say the and and say the Our Father with him, but like this is his this is his heritage. This is his land. And and Latour is respectful of that and honoring of that, um, but it is, I mean, it it's one of those things that like haunts the whole book. Yeah. And and nobody can figure out nobody can nobody in the new world can figure out what to do about that. And it's Latour who is like, this isn't a problem. This is just the people. I I really appreciated Latour's response to when he rose and he sees the boy kind of like mm-hmm. leaning into the crack, you know, in the middle of the night, listening to that water rush below. And it's really clear that something is happening inside that boy. There's some resonance happening inside of him that Latour cannot understand. And he knows that he can't understand it. And I think if Latour was um, driven more by fear in that situation he would have forced a meaning upon it. Latour would have. He would have said, I know what's happening. Mm. This is um, like some sort of like, you know, pagan relic, you know, mystery cult. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't, he doesn't like force a meaning upon it. He kind of just allows it to be. And he doesn't think that it's, um, I think he recognizes the sort of danger of allowing that of what, how that belief could plot could possibly blossom and affect the beliefs that Latour has for his church. I think he's not ignorant about that, but I greatly appreciated his reluctance to kind of 
give a rational assessment, uh, you know, uh, apply a meaning to it when he really, and instead owns the fact that this is something that's beyond him. Yes. This is so deep within the people and within the landscape that it's beyond him. And like so many instances in Father Latour's life that we've seen thus far, the wisdom is to take a step back and to, and to wait, to not make an assessment, to bide his time. Maybe he'll come to a greater understanding later. Maybe he won't. But I greatly appreciate this sort of like wisdom of his own um, silence or his own refusal to make a judgment. Exactly. When it's a real, he doesn't try to manage it or solve no, it. He's exactly. not like, well, let me just offer God into your like rock cave. Let's do like some catechism not, right now. And like, I'm going right. to work this out of you, which I would feel so good for Father Latour. I mean, I think it would really mitigate the kind of um, worrisome aspects of the worship that is really localized inside this cave. I think it would be very easy for Latour to catechize it out of existence. To try to colonize it. Right, to colonize it. It's interesting that you mentioned catechism because have you guys seen the movie Spotlight? Yeah. No. Oh my gosh, it's so good. It's a great movie. movie. Um, and, And so in it, there's this part where this character named his name's Marty Baron. He's the he's the editor of the Boston Globe, and of course they're investigating. You know, the early two thousands, they're investigating the the sex abuse cases in the in the, the Catholic Church in Boston. And there's this part where he goes to meet the bishop. He's just come to town. He goes to meet the bishop in the area, and they have a conversation. And he's basically going to tell the bishop, "We're gonna we're going to be filing an injunction to have some." some documents opened from previous cases so we can do some reporting on them. And the bishop, before he can really, before he can get that out, he essentially gives him a gift, which is a welcome gift. And he says, you know, just a, it's a, it's a old Catholic priest way of saying welcome to town. Marty Baron is Jewish. He's not, not Catholic at all. Doesn't know the city that well. And when he gets out to his car to open it, the bishop has wrapped it, wrapped him a giant Catholic catechism book, giant. And (laughs) it's, you know, he, the, I was thinking about how you con I was watching this last night. You contrast that scene where the bishops talking to someone who doesn't believe what he believes. And instead of trying to build a relationship with him or whatever, he gives him the, this giant, I mean, I mean, giant catechism book. And you could contrast that with, you know, take what you're saying here where Latour doesn't give, this, he doesn't create a catechism course, which is interesting because what he's up against is superstition. Mm-hmm. And so is, is the idea then that what happens when you take catechism and pagan superstition and bring them together, that what you're going to get is Martinez and Latour? Is that the implication? I think that that's the question Cather's asking. I think what Cather is saying is this is this new world is a very, very complex place. It's actually only new to the Europeans. It's old, very mm-hmm. old to the native peoples. Right. So the idea of calling it the new world is like audaciously arrogant, right? And, but that's how you're, that, I've, 
that's in some ways how the Europeans think about things. Like here we are with our civilization, like, and, but so we have here then an encounter that Latour has with the oldness of the new world. Mm -hmm. And I think that what, I think exactly what you just said. I think one of the underlying questions of the entire novel is it's a very, very complex place. It's not as simple as just coming in and, and, you know, purifying the church and evangelizing the natives. It is, there's, there's a lot happening. And what does that do to a priest? Like what, how does a priest encounter that? Do you encounter that as like humbly as a mystery uh, to be, uh, to be treated with, with care and humility um, or, and, and with, and also great faith, or do you encounter it and allow it to corrupt you and just try to take all the power that you can or be defeated and discouraged by it, which we'll also see. Right. And so this, this question of what to do with the fact that the new world is actually old <laughs> is I, I think it's one of the great questions of the novel. What does that do to somebody trying to trying to navigate that? So at the end of chapter four, the snake snake root chapter, hmm. Latour is it says that he kept his word and never spoke of Jacinto's cave to anyone, but he didn't cease from wondering about it. And Kit Carson t- tells him about Zeb Orchard, the traitor, uh, T R A D E R traitor, and. Uh, they are having a conversation about some of the customs. And it says, Orchard admitted that when he was a boy, he had seen, been very curious about the snake stories himself and once at their festival time had spied on the Pecos men, though that was not a very safe thing to do. He had laid an ambush for two nights on the mountain and he saw a party of Indians bringing, it, bringing in a chest by torchlight. It was about the size of a woman's trunk and it was heavy enough to bend the young aspen poles on which it was hung. If I'd seen white men bring in on a chest after dark, he observed... I could have made a guess at what was in them, in it, money or whiskey or firearms. But seeing it was Indians, I can't say. It might have been only queer-shaped rocks their ancestors had taken a notion to. The, thing that, the things they value most are worth nothing to us. They've got their own superstitions, and their minds will go round and round in the same old ruts till Judgment Day. Father Latour remarked that their veneration for old customs was a quality he liked in the Indians, and that it played a great part in his own religion. The trader told him he might make good Catholics among the Indians, but he would never separate them from their own beliefs. Their priests have their own kind of mysteries. I don't know how much of it is real and how much of it is made up. That's a really interesting passage to have immediately mm-hmm. before the chapter about the two priests who Agreed. are the who come from both of those two traditions. So you, on the one hand, you have the man who they have you have two priests who have end up with chests that are obvious what they have in them, right? Money, whiskey, firearms, right? Lucero's, Lucero and Martinez, yep. they've got chests full of both of, of, of those sorts of things. But then they also have, you know, things that their ancestors took a notion to that, that um, Zeb Orchard, good name by the way, calls, calls superstitions. And so it's very interesting that, you know, it says these priests have their own kind of mysteries. And then you get these two mysterious priests in the next chapter. So it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting the way she folds all that, folds all that in, but I don't come away from it feeling like I know yet what, what, which side of those things we're supposed to be in favor of. Like, are we, and, and I still haven't come to the conclu- a conclusion yet 
about whether the book thinks that the work of Father Latour is valuable, mm-hmm. is worth That's a good question. is worth the is worth making Martinez's and Latour's. I mean, and Lucero's. Like, and and is there a way that you can avoid when the two things clash? Are they inevitable? Are are, are making Mar- Martinez and Lucero's out of out of those clashes? Are they inevitable like Bane? <laughs> little, well, little Batman. one thing that Tim said earlier, I think is really valuable in this book. It is, I, I know we've called the book soothing and I still stand by that, um, but it is very complex and it raises some uh, incredibly delicate and complex ethical, spiritual, cultural issues, um, almost more than any book I know because most most books to your point take a stand right it's either the wicked natives or the wicked colonizers right one or the other is bad and um and this book just flatly refuses to do that and I love that about the book it just as Tim you said earlier that it just there there's a like a journalistic quality to it right she just tells the story here's the story like take it for what you will Right. And, and there's, that's where we, I think Tim, you, and was it maybe David who compared it? Was it David? Was it you who compared it to Hemingway? Her writing to Hemingway or kind of brought up week. the similarities between the two. Yeah. There's a lot of similarities in the journalistic style of writing. Um, and I think Cather does an even better job than Hemingway of leaving it to the reader to interpret. So I think Hemingway tells us exactly what to think. He just does it in a very sparse way, right? <laughs> Cather really doesn't. She tells a story and she just tells the story. Uh, she reports it. Um, and there's enough in there to make judgments, small J judgments, like, you know, well, well thought out, you know, decisions on what you think is right and wrong. I'm not talking about the finger pointing kind of angry judgment, um, to, but to, she gives you enough to, I think, judge rightly, but she doesn't tell you what to think about these complex issues. And they're very complex, even to this day. <clears throat> um, we're at an hour. Do you, I was going to maybe wait, save this question for a future episode, but I'll ask it now and then we can come to it in the end. Tim, do you want her to make statements like that? Heidi says she really likes the lack of sort of statements that the book makes, that it leaves things a little more gray. Do you find yourself wanting her to come down on one side or the other and give us some value judgments, maybe a little more, or at least imply them? Because I think there's a way, I think there's lots of great books which make judgments, but they can do it without just telling you what the judgment is right away or, or without, or they can show you stuff. So there's lots of great books that make, that don't leave things in the gray, but get to the gray, the not gray area through gray means, if that makes sense. <laughs> so do you find yourself wanting her to do that? Or do you, or do you, are you looking for that as you get to the end? I, I don't want her to do that. Like, I, I think it's part of, I don't what is the right word? The atmosphere that the book creates, I think would burn away if she was keen to make judgments that she doesn't make in the book. This is not to say that that novels ought not make judgments. Like I think the majority of novels that I love, like Hemingway, as Heidi pointed out, 
they do, they want us to see the world in a certain way. And um, the, the ability of the author is kind of the, there's a relationship between the ability of the author and that author's um, capacity to like, let us see the world as they see it and even live the world in the way that they want us to live the world. So I am in Dostoevsky and Hemingway, and I could name a hundred others. They advocate for a certain view of the world. I think Cather's reluctant to do that. I think Cather kind of belongs with Shakespeare in this way. Like Shakespeare is notoriously mm-hmm. slippery. Like, what do you yeah. think, dude? You know, like, he gets accused of equivocating all the time. And I think the reason he's accused of equivocating all the time is because he equivocates all the time. He sure does. You know? It's awesome. And he, and, and he's and he, like, this is the master. This is William Shakespeare. I would also put um, books like Madame Bovary in that category. I, I would put, um, gosh, anyway, I, I could think of others that belong in that camp where they are very deliberate about reserving judgment and they, they see their task as helping you to see it's a journey. It's more of a journalistic task than anything else. And I think Cather in this book, I haven't read her other books and this book belongs in that camp. And I don't think that the book could act, I, I will actually go far enough to say, I don't think the book will succeed, could succeed mm-hmm. if she steps in and supplies judgments. You know, you should think about father Martinez this way. You should think about father Latour this way. I don't, I, I think the book would fail. I think it's part of the whole structure of the book is that she is, very reserved in her assessments. It's interesting though, that you said earlier how much she wants us to make judgments because about characters like, like Lucera and Martinez. Like, yeah, I, I feel like I'm kind of like talking out of both sides of my mouth because she's not, I feel like I'm saying she's not making judgments and yet she wants us to see father Latour and father Vaillant as heroes. So, I have to admit, I think part of the reason why I see Father Viant and Father Latour as heroes comes from my own convictions. Like I want to align myself with them because I want to live the kind of life that I, that I see them living. I think that Cather certainly admires them, but is this book an advocacy book for those two men? Mm. I don't know. That's great question. I think what you're, she, there is no doubt that she idealizes Latour and Vaillant. That is true. That she um, idealizes them be, or that she. I think she portrays them ideal I, as an ideal. I don't, up to this point, I'm not going to go past this point. They haven't done much wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. But here's. Depending on how you read the mule scene. Right. Which there was <laughs> some people read that differently. You had many more people on your side of this question than mine on the Facebook group, but the, um, and that's fair, but it for sure Latour then, right? He is an idealized character, but she doesn't idealize the church, but she presents multiple perspectives on their presence in this world, right? She doesn't idealize the native cultures. Like Jaquinto's portrayed as just like a very, as like very positively, but then she also draws attention more than once to some of the 
savage rituals and the massacres and attacks, right? So she's not, uh, and then there's also the Mexican culture, which is again portrayed realistically, not idealistically and not undermined, but realistic. And, and so, but the people are a little bit different. We are in some ways told this guy is bad and this guy is good, right? But, and what I really like about that is that there's this emphasis on personhood, on individual goodness or badness, rather than institutions or groups of people. Now, I find this very refreshing because I think the public square right now is kind of the opposite, right? And so I find this like very refreshing that the emphasis isn't on good group, bad group, but good person, bad person. And and I like that. I find that refreshing in such an ideal, <laughs> such an ideologically divided public square that puts so much emphasis on you know, if you're on this side of an issue, then you're bad. And if you're on this side, then you're good on both sides. So I think that that, I find that just really lovely and refreshing. Um, And I think that that's another one of the things that she's pointing to um, in the, in the book. David, what do you think about your own question? Do you wish that she put more judgments or do you like kind of the ambiguity of it? I think that, um, I need to see how it ends, <laughs> but Fair. I, I think that, um, up to this point, then the ambiguity question is hard for me because I have to think what I mean, but like what we mean by what things are ambiguous and what things are not like, it seems that on the one hand, you have the question of whether two different cultures are better off in their purest forms. Mm-hmm. So, um, you have Father Latour who, who's got these pure motivations in the Catholic Church, you know, and it's sort of like representing the Catholic Church in his purest form, particularly the European Catholic Church. And then you've got this ancient, similarly ancient, perhaps even older culture. And when you put the two together, you end up with characters who aren't ambiguous. Um, you mean Latour and Vaillant? N- no, well... And the others. Um, I meant the other ones, really. I I meant when you put them together, you get Martinez and Lucero. They're they're kind of the flashpoint between the two cultures. And when they're put together, they're not. There's not. They're. You're. It's not ambiguous about them because I mean, Lucero even says that he. What does he say? He's talking to the young men at the wedding party or whatever. It says Lucero's best stories are about Martinez and Martinez's best stories are about Lucero. And Lucero says something like, you know, avarice is the best. Avarice gets better as you grow older or something like that. And and how, you know, Martinez was into women and he was into money, you know, and you're not, it's not ambiguous, these characters. Right. They're not ambiguous. Maybe what happens to them in the end, like the question of Lucero's, soul at the end of his life could is that we were talking about earlier. There's an ambiguity about that. Um, and so what I'm wondering is, is there like, is the problem that there's the clash between these cultures? Um, and then it's the natural outgrowth of two cultures that, you know, there's like a, that, that, that are better off in their purest forms. Um, and the, maybe the, maybe the, Maybe the book is saying the church should have left them alone. <laughs> so I need when we get to the when we get to the end, 
that's the that's what what I want to see is how much ambiguity she's still lingering in on that question. Yeah. So I don't mind things being ambiguous. That's not really a problem for me. Um, But I think because she's raising those questions, she owes the audience an answer. Um, And that doesn't mean that the answer can't be more questions, (laughs) nor that it can only have one answer. But I think that there's a degree to which the, the asking of the question, like, I don't know, she's kind of entering into a dialectic almost. (laughs) Uh, So I, I, I need to see how it ends is my answer. But also I do think that there's a degree to which there's a difference between being ambiguous and asking questions. You're not, you're not willing to answer. Um, And you think she might be potentially she's doing the latter. She's asking questions that she's not willing she to could, answer. Potentially she could be writing a metaphor for like what she thought of 1920s baseball for all I know. Um, but oh, the, but you I, know better than that, David. You know better I mean, than just that. Like, I, haven't, I haven't got to the end yet. Yeah. So mm-hmm. um, yeah. there could be a lot of things that she's trying to do that she, she could shift gears pretty clearly. Although it would be, that would be pretty interesting if she was actually writing, in, writing in an, uh, a metaphor for 1918 baseball. <laughs> it was a pretty I, I big for the Yankees and the Red Sox. I think that the... Um, that chapter Every four is—it's right in the middle of the book, almost dead middle of the book—and it will be interesting to see whether or not this theme, which is so acutely addressed in chapter four—the question of kind of indigenous culture versus Europeanizing colon, Europeanized colonizer—that um, is dealt with very acutely in chapter four. It will be interesting to see whether that theme continues because right now you could say the whole book is about this question. We have these two French priests coming over, making this long journey and you could interpret the entire book as the colonizers have arrived. Will they do more good or more harm? Well, yeah. I mean, even more specifically, like the colonizers have been there and the two cultures clashed produced people like Lucero and Martinez. And so it's like, they're sending these purifying agents to go in and do the next step of their education. Yes. Of the cleansing. But it, even both, but both of you are saying is so simplistic. Like, I know that's not what you're trying to do, but that is so modern, right? That's what every book is being written about today. That's but Heidi, not I'm necessarily. Not, I'm not advocating what, that this is what the book is about. I'm just saying at this point in the book, we could. Well, it's one well, that, of the questions that that's the raised. <laughs> it's one of the questions that's raised and it's answered, I think, absolutely from the very beginning by there are some bad priests and some good priests. It's way too simplistic to make this about colonization. Like she's already answered the question, which is we have a very complex situation. The Europeans keep coming and some of them are good and some of them are bad. Some of the natives are good and some of them are bad. Some of the Mexicans are good and some of them are bad. I some agree. of the Americans are good and some of the Americans are bad. This isn't about colonization. It's about people. And colonization create has created a world that has produced people. And now we're looking at the people. I agree with you, Heidi. I was I was merely trying to say, at this point in the book, we still are halfway there. Mm-hmm. We don't really know the story that's being told. Right. And that's what David is saying. He's like, I don't want to make a judgment on yeah. this because I don't have all the information yet. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not saying your understanding of the book is simplistic or that you're, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that that is, I'm so afraid that that is what listeners will get from the book. Like, I don't want it. I don't, I'm very tired of, of colonization conversations. <laughs> like I would, I think that what Cather keeps what Cather keeps saying is it's way more complex than just whether or not Europeans are bad or Mexicans are bad or like the world, the complexity of the world is already there. This is the complexity of the world goes very deep. We have the, we got three cultures being met here already, right? We've got Mexicans, we've got the Europeans and we've got the native cultures. And now we also have the Americans. We've only met two Americans, one good and one bad, right? We have the bad man who beats his wife. And then we have Kit Carson, who's good. So again, she, like Shakespeare, she doesn't let it be this. She's, she, she's always providing a point and a counterpoint and saying, we're not going to be able to take one person or one character as like set this symbolic judgment on my part as the author on a larger cultural force. I think, can I propose this Heidi? I, I agree yes. with you. I think that's how she's, she's representing the characters in the way that you just described. I don't dispute that at all. What if she is saying, um, I'm reluctant to even put this forward because Mm -hmm. we're halfway through the book and I'm still saying what the book is about is still to be determined. I mean, like I'm in my second read through and I'm still kind of like, what exactly is this book about? But let me propose just for fun that what if her question is how do good people act and how do bad people act under the broad canopy of um, the Europeanization of New Mexico? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all of her books are about what happens when people go to places where they've never been before. Right. Um, yeah. And I think that that's, I think that that's fair. I think that's true. Yeah. I th- to it. Okay. This is going to sound critical of you. I don't mean it that way. Who's I'm just you? Put that out there. Heidi, I think mm-hmm. you might be responding to the sort of flashpoint that is the word colonization. Because I think like we call it that but what we're really talking about is what happens when one of the things that this book is about is what happens when people who belong to different cultures bump into each other. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of an inherently interesting question though. I mean, mm-hmm. e- even if we're not talking about the politics of colonization, right? we're talking about the, hu- to your point, the human problems of what happens when cultures that are old <laughs> in particular bump, run up against each other. And mm-hmm. what are the results right. of that? Yes. I don't see her... I think what I'm trying to say poorly, or what I was trying to say a minute ago, is that I don't know that I see her treatment on that as being ambiguous per Mm. se. I think she's being kind of direct about how she thinks that... Like, But this might be where we agree. I think what she's saying is the results of that kind of clash, and I'll use the word clash loosely, that kind of clash is complicated. Exactly. So you're calling that ambiguity... And I'm saying that she's being pretty clear about the fact that what happens when you do that is complicated. <laughs> so yeah, maybe that's where I, it's just a matter of semantics. No, I don't think that because I, I get what you're saying. I think what I am saying is that her commentary is um, is not in uh, the. You're exactly right. Like 
there's no ambiguity about the fact that this is a violent clash that has gone through all levels of society, spiritually, culturally, mm-hmm. economically, everywhere. Like that there's, and, and that the results of that have been both positive and negative for all people groups and all humans involved. That is a given. That's what I'm saying. That's a given. Like there's, she's not, and I do not think that she has written this entire story to indict either side of the question of whether or not colonization is good. I think that she's raising the question of the complexity of it and then allowing the reader to sort through that for him or herself. I don't think you're going to get to the end of the book and say, wow, she just really is for or against colonization. I can, I can, I suspect you're probably right. But I also think it's almost like a character in the novel. It's the setting of the novel. It's, I mean, it permeates the novel. It's, it is the problem of the novel, to your point, colonization, the clash of cultures, the fact that these cultures are not pure. She would have had to write a different novel if you're looking for the problems in a pure culture. That's not this novel. Right. Um, yeah, that, so, I guess that's what I'm saying. And that's why it's an American novel. Like, a, this had to happen in the United States, right? So... I think I, I'm saying the all of that. The future United States. Yes. What I am, and, and I feel like I've made myself really clear here. I do not think she's written this novel to either indict or defend colonization. I think she's just presenting it as the backdrop and the problem of the novel. But, it, it, but it's not the problem. You're, you're saying the, it's not the problem. Uh, how, do I, how do I? The moral problem. Yeah. It's not the it's problem not the that thing. the characters We're are not, trying to undo. She's not going to take a stand on it. I don't think you'll get to the end and think, wow, she's really taking a stand that this is a good or bad way to have built a nation. I think we'll get to the end with the, the so that I, and I, I really think that it, as David said, it's subtle what we're talking about in terms of the language of it. So, yeah. yeah Tim, you were saying it's not the problem in terms of the thing that characters are going to solve. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Maybe the analogy is something like this. I think it was um, President Clinton said something like, arguing with globalization is like arguing with gravity. It just is happening. At this point in the history of the world, colonization is just happening. It's kind of right. too late to do anything about it. Now, I want to... By like... But some, but like Half the egregious effects of colonization, something can be done about it on a, like a, on a very localized level. And by a localized level, I mean in this particular place, in, in like near Santa Fe and within New Mexico, these two priests, um, Vaillant and Latour, are attempting in some way to navigate the world. I think in like in a path of integrity, they're trying to navigate a world that has been deeply affected by colonization. I don't see them as trying to kind of roll back the clock. Colonization, we can mm-hmm. just do away with it. So, so if I'm understanding you right, Heidi, you're saying they're not trying to roll back the clock on colonization. They're kind of like accepting it as a force that has arrived. And now... But, and yet it is still the problem of the book because they just have to live within this reality. Is mm-hmm. it something like so, that? Yeah. yeah. I th- I'm with you on that. Yeah, I actually am too. I think what I'm trying to say, I think maybe you're 
helping me clarify this. It's not that the book, when I said that I want the book to give you, give, give us an answer to a question, I don't think that the answer to the question that I'm looking for is to make a political statement or some kind of statement about the nature of colonization itself. If we accept that the book is mm. saying that colonization is a complicated thing, then the book has to give us some kind of an answer about the way the characters responded to that complication. Like the mm. book, ha if the book is going to set us up these characters who are responding in various ways to something that is complicated, then by the end of it, we have to have a sense of what the book thinks about the way those characters responded to that complication. And that's what I'm looking for. So at the end of right. the book, right now, we don't have complicated. The book, as Heidi said, kind of makes, it idealizes Latour. Thus, mm -hmm. his actions we are meant to see as inherently positive. Like we're Agreed. meant to view his response to that complication as an, as inherently noble. Or at least well-intended. That's fair. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I guess I would say, I guess I would, for the sake of conversation, I would say that I view well-intended and noble. I was kind of saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. I, that's kind of what I meant. I think that his, his intentions right. were noble. Um, so when we get to the end, are we, are we, is it still going to be that way? Or are we going to have are we going to have another level of complication introduced where maybe his noble intentions had ramifications that were not as good or didn't that had negative ramifications, which then mm. will rise as, raise a different series of questions we'd have to talk about then. And therefore I don't want to bring up right now. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's not, I'm not looking for the book to make some kind of political statement about you. Cause you said it was about people, right? I'm not looking for it to make a political statement. I'm looking for it to make a statement about the things that it tells us the people are doing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and, or at least prepare <laughs> us clarify. to make, uh -huh. have an understanding of what they're saying. I, maybe, maybe the book doesn't need to come right out and say, and thus, dear reader, the choice is the character I'm made. Here, I married him. Yes. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll talk about that line one day. Mm, this year? In April or May, probably. Um, but anyway, so it's not so much that the book needs to make a political statement about it, but it needs to help us make, help us sort through the characters as they, as they kind of deal with this complexity. Yeah. So don't leave, yeah. the notion of making judgments about characters, I don't, I have strong feelings <laughs> about what reading is, uh, it, it, when, it, when in regards to that. And I think that every author is constantly inviting us to make judgments about characters. Like, I don't think there's a way to write a story that is not that. And mm -hmm. so I think that in the end, what a good author does is give you the stakes, the coordinates, the terms upon which you're actually supposed to make that judgment. Mm -hmm. when, you make a ju when you make a judgment about a reader, you're not like inserting yourself into the story if you follow the terms of judgment that the author offers to you. Like the author can tell you, he, this character has made a bunch of decisions. And in the end, you have to decide what you think of this character. Like that's what, that's what a story does. It asks you to participate in the story by doing that. But it gives you a certain set of parameters. Now, when you go off and you say that the terms of that judgment are the terms that I make them, that's when you start getting outside of what the author wants you to do. So I think that in the end of the, the book, in the end, the author is, Cather is going to ask us to make judgments about the actions because that's what determines whether or not right. it's a positive ending right. or not <laughs> but as tim pointed out earlier i i think that what you're saying is exactly right but what tim what you said earlier was really like really true that it's not like you get to the end of a wendell berry novel and you're like man this guy's like 
really fair and balanced about the issue of urban life versus right. rural life. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he's making a statement. And but that's part of the terms by which you then have yeah, to judge the character. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And same with Dostoevsky, same with all of these great authors that we, but we don't get to the end of any given Shakespearean history play and say, man, like Shakespeare's really making a statement here about uh, the, oh, that's true. I don't know, the divine right of kings. True. And I think we're going to get to the end of this novel and we are not going to say Cather is really making a statement about what she thinks will solve the problem of colonization in American history. I think yeah, you're, I totally agree with you, Heidi. In Shakespeare, when I talk about terms in Shakespeare, I would say mm-hmm. that part of the, what we're doing is we're, we're making judgments based on the questions that are asked in a Shakespeare yes. play. Yes. Like, when I say terms, yes. it's not just defining things. It's also like, what are the contexts by which I'm having this conversation with myself about this character? And that's usually the series of questions that Shakespeare raises. Mm-hmm. Um, and in his yeah. history plays in particular... <laughs> That's true. And his history plays have a point and a counterpoint, right? You've got one bad guy, one good guy that represents divine right of kings. One bad guy, one good guy who represents the democratic point. Right? So there's that's to your point. This is exactly yeah, right. to your yeah, point about characterizations comparison. is that he has these characterizations and you don't have like a villain and a good guy on one side of a question that tells you what to think about a specific issue. And I admire that greatly about about Shakespeare. And I think we need all kinds of books, some that take a stand and some that don't on these important issues. Um, so I just, I, yeah, that's all. We'll have to come back to this because we're now at an hour and 30 minutes. <laughs> Tim, do you have anything you want to no. add? No. Heidi and I have been kind of arguing in circles for 15 minutes. No, I'm good. Um, yeah. I think that, um, Books like this raise questions that are sort of inherently political. And so they can lead to conversations about the value of asking those kind of questions in books. <laughs> but then also, as Heidi's put so well, there's a, there's a the human aspect. And the human aspect is what makes us read it over and over again. And the human aspect is what makes it, you, you know, makes it most interesting and most compelling and most allows us to be there in the story. Um, hmm. So that, um, that's why we, that's why it's worth doing on a podcast, right? Talking that's about right. it for like five weeks. Heidi, do you have anything you want to add? Only that the first couple, hold on three, two sentences of the next section. Doña Isabella book six. Um, are, two of my favorite sentences in a novel ever. They're kind of simple and they describe three of my favorite human people in the world that I know. My husband, my best friend and my friend, David Kern. So <laughs> oh, wow, okay. I always think about you when I read these sentences in this novel. Um, okay. Well, and I'm- same as, yeah. So anyway, there you go. That's my final thought. Guess I'm going to learn something about myself mm-hmm. when I read those. All right. Well, we should wrap this up. Um, 
thanks to everyone who's been listening. Don't forget, we've got uh, some great content over on the, the Patreon page. We're finishing up the Fellowship of the Ring this week. We recorded that episode. That's already up. And then next week, we're going to do our Q&A and then dive into the two towers. Thank goodness there's two more books because <laughs> I'm already like, I already feel so sad that we're a third of the way done. <laughs> Um, and then of course we're going to do books six and seven of death comes for the archbishop and then we'll do eight and nine and then our next book after this is rebecca if you have not uh, already seen that schedule you can go over to the facebook page or if you're not on facebook go over to closereads.substack that's s-u-b-s-t-a-c-k substack.com we can get access to the newsletter um, and we've got schedules and all that sort of thing in there so um the patreon page is patreon.com slash closereads if you uh, want to send in a question, you can email us. Uh, please email uh, david at goldberrybooks.com. That's going to be the new place to, to send in information or questions or whatever about future plans, schedules, questions about a book, anything like that. And of course, we need to shout out Logan Green because he does make these episodes sound better. And I want to make sure I do that more often. So thanks to Logan. Logan, I know you're listening to this. I mean, you're editing it, so I assume you're listening to this. So shout out to Logan. We appreciate your hard work. With that, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I am David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.